In February 2016, Tim Urban delivered what I believe to be the single greatest TED Talk of all time. The title of his message was this, Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator. It was this genius mix of vulnerability, storytelling, comedy, and inspiration. He told the story of his battle with procrastination, and to do it, he used three simple cartoon characters. Now, when I say cartoon characters, I don't want you to think Simpsons or Pixar or your favorite Disney movie. I want you to think a four-year-old messing around with markers and crayons and glitter glue and poster board, that kind of cartoon character. See, according to Tim, here's how procrastination works. Character one. Character one is the rational decision maker. When he's controlling the brain, all is good. You're productive and in control. The rational decision maker likes to be productive. But there's another character, character two. Character two is the instant gratification monkey, and he looks as ridiculous as he sounds. He's the opposite of the rational decision maker. He doesn't like to do work. He likes to do things that are easy and fun. And when he takes control of your brain, you get nothing of value done. But there's a third character. The third character is the panic monster. When the panic monster shows up, he scares the instant gratification monkey away and gives control of the brain back to the rational decision maker. This explains how a procrastinator can suddenly find a tremendous amount of energy to get a project done that they've been putting off for weeks. It's when the instant gratification monkey is controlling the brain, the panic monster shows up, the monkey runs off up a tree, and the rational decision maker can be back in control and be productive. It really is a great TED Talk. If you haven't watched it, you should. It was a simple and helpful way to describe a common struggle. So why do I start with this? I start with this because today we're going to talk about two of these characters. We're going to talk about the rational decision maker and the panic monster. You see, come to find out these two characters don't just impact our ability to remain focused and productive. These two characters also have a huge impact on a key aspect of leadership, the way you and I manage and handle stressful situations. As you all know, leadership is not easy. We face stress every single day, which means every single day, you and I run the risk of being attacked by this dreaded panic monster. So today, I want to help. Welcome to Here's What I'm Seeing, conversations from the front lines of life and leadership. I'm your host, Adam Tarno. So in Mr. Urban's TED Talk, he makes it sound like the only person scared of the panic monster is that instant gratification monkey. That's not entirely true. Come to find out the rational decision maker is also afraid of this vicious panic monster. As a leader, we need to be aware of this. You see, here's how it works. Most days when you show up to work, the rational decision maker is doing his thing. He's in control of your brain. He's keeping you rational, keeping you calm, focused, friendly, and productive. But within a few minutes of showing up at work, the rational decision maker comes under attack. The calendar alert pops up and reminds you that a deadline is looming. You get an email that criticizes a project you just completed. You listen to a voicemail that contains a complaint from an important client. And right after that, a coworker stops by your office and lovingly tells you how he's not getting enough attention from you. So within 30 minutes of starting work, the panic monster is trying to overthrow the rational decision maker and get control of your brain. And many times, he's successful. How do you know if he's successful? Easy. You say things you later regret or behave in a way that upon reflection is really pretty embarrassing. Kind of the way I assume Bernie Sanders feels right now after seeing himself in all of those memes. Come to find out there's a more scientific way to describe this battle 
between the panic monster and the rational decision maker. It's actually called The Amygdala Hijack, which sounds like a Michael Crichton novel if you ask me. But The Amygdala Hijack was a term that was coined by Daniel Goleman in his 1996 book, Emotional Intelligence. Now, I'm a CPA by trade and not a medical doctor, so I'm going to let someone way more qualified than me explain The Amygdala Hijack. So the amygdala hijack is a physiological reaction when we feel threatened in some way. So it can be emotional, physical, um, psychological. And so the stimulus comes in, we read an email, we, we listen to someone, in some way we feel threatened, right? And so our, our thinking brain, our cortex is bypassed. And, and, these, and these impulses go to our amygdala, which is the emotional sentinel, and we get an adrenaline and a cortisol dump. And we just sort of like start thinking narrowly, we have physiological reaction to it. And that's when the monster can, can take over. It's the emotional sentinel. It's right kind of in the, in the limbic system in the lower part of your brain. And a lot of it, we've talked about this many times over the course of these different episodes where leaders really get off their game and they, and they start getting into some sort of negative interpretation or negative narrative like when we talked about imposter syndrome. So personally, I have quite the history with this amygdala hijack. Let me just give you a quick example. So a few years ago, I was with some friends skiing in the mountains of North Carolina. We had spent all morning on the slopes, and now in the afternoon, we were all hanging around the condo just relaxing. It was a beautiful day out, and I decided I wanted to get a little bit more exercise, so I put on my running shoes, and I went out for a run. It was a beautiful and serene day. There I am, sun shining. It's a little cool, and I am just enjoying this run outside in the peace and quiet of the North Carolina. Carolina mountains. And then out of nowhere, suddenly I realized I was being chased by a vicious looking dog. The stress of that moment triggered a shot of adrenaline and cortisol and immediately my amygdala kicked in and took over the executive functioning of my brain. And so what did I do? I outran the dog screaming as loud as I possibly could and I avoided certain death or at least what I thought was certain death. Because that's what happens when the amygdala hijack kicks in, you act. So if you, like me, ever find yourself in the mountains of North Carolina on a run and you're being chased by a dog, that action can be very helpful. Sometimes you can thank your brain for saving your life. However, there's another side to this conversation, and that's why we're talking about the amygdala hijack here on a podcast for leaders, because here's the deal. Non-life-threatening situations can also cause the amygdala hijack to kick in. And as leaders, most of the stress that we face is non-life-threatening. Now, of course, there are people who are in war zones or on the front lines as first responders, or there are people who dangle from helicopters and rescue people from sinking ships. There are a lot of leaders that face life-threatening situations every day, but for most of us, we face non-life-threatening stress every single day, which means every day we run the risk of being attacked by the panic monster. Again, let me share some examples. So one time in high school, I was probably a freshman or a sophomore, I was sitting in science class and I thought my science teacher was picking on another student and I didn't like it. So guess what I did? I stood up in the middle of class and I yelled at her and I told her that I thought the way she was treating my peer was bullshit. Here's another example. One time I got really frustrated with my younger brother. I thought he needed to make some changes to his life. And so one night, my brother was in the other room. I decided to tell my mom all the ways that I felt my brother needed to change his life. And I raised my voice a little bit because I knew I really wasn't talking to my mom in this wonderfully glorious, passive-aggressive way. I was actually talking to my brother. I knew my words would be heard by him, and they were. 
Here's another example. Twice in college, two times, I became so stressed out and frustrated by two different roommates, I told them the ways I thought they should behave differently, and I gave them a piece of my mind. One last example. One time at work, I felt like three leaders above me on the org chart were colluding to undermine me on a project that I was working on. And so what did I do? I barged into their office, I pointed fingers, and I let them know what I thought of their actions. Now, I'll, I'll stop there. I could tell you more stories about times that under stress, I've snapped at my kids, snapped at my friends or other coworkers, but I think you get the picture. In each of these situations, it was non-life-threatening, but the typical amygdala hijack sequence happened anyway. In each of these non-life-threatening situations, the panic monster scared off the rational decision-maker, and I acted. And in each of these situations, my behavior left me feeling embarrassed and regretful. Why? Well, when I stood up and told the teacher what I thought of her actions, I got sent to the principal's office. When my brother heard what I had to say about his life and my opinions of it, he didn't talk to me for over a year. My college roommates, when they heard me unload all of my thoughts on them, here we are over 20 years later, and they still won't talk to me. Those peers that I barged into their office and told them that I didn't appreciate how I thought they were trying to undermine me, I lost their respect. That's why, when I look back on these moments, I have the feeling of embarrassment and regret. So why am I talking about all this? I'm talking about all this today because the amygdala hijack is deeply personal to me. I have so many examples in my life of me giving control of my brain over to the panic monster. And most of these situations do not involve life or death. They're just normal stresses that I face in everyday leadership in life. The impact of this panic monster has made my life worse, not better. I've hurt people. I've said things I regretted, and I've been embarrassed. Every time I take one of those emotional intelligence assessments, self-control and self-regulation always pop up as the number one item that will limit my leadership impacts, and I hate it. I feel like a victim, honestly. I don't, I don't choose to feel the way I do before I act. It feels unfair, but I want it to stop. And so here's the question that I start to ask. Is there anything I can do to limit the panic monster's influence? Am I just a victim or are there some strategies that I can use to give control back to the rational decision maker? So today I'm going to do something. Today I'm going to assume that I'm not the only one with these questions. Today I'm going to assume that there are plenty of other leaders out there who would like for the panic monster to have less influence in their life. I'm going to assume there are fewer Neil Armstrongs out there and more Adam Tarnos. Here's what I mean by that. So Neil Armstrong, you know him, the first man to land on the moon. He's famous for never letting the panic monster take control of his brain. His heart rate was 150 beats per minute when the eagle lander he was piloting touched down on the moon. Now, you may be sitting there going, Adam, those numbers mean nothing to me. Help me put that in context. Here's what this is in context. That's 80% of the max capacity. That is an incredibly good heartbeat rate for the stress of that situation, like crazy good, like Olympic level good, like maybe the best ever. I know for me, my heart rate goes to 180 when I try to parallel park. And if somebody's watching me, I'm sure it spikes to 205 or something crazy like that. So today we're going to talk about how we can all be more like Neil, how we can limit the panic monster's influence in our life. Now, if you're like Neil Armstrong and you don't struggle with the panic monster, you always stay calm in the face of stress. I'm going to be honest, we've got nothing for you today. So you can feel free to turn off this episode and go check out the latest episode of Planet Money or Joe Rogan or Fresh Air. For the rest of you, 
let's dive into some specifics. All right, Cynthia, here's what I'd love to hear from you on this conversation. So from a big picture perspective, do you think we are helpless victims to the panic monsters attack? Mm, That's a great question. I don't know that I would say we're helpless victims because I think there are things we can do to navigate these waters. I think in the moment when something happens that triggers you, yeah, there, there's not anything you can do to avoid the trigger itself. So these triggers are going to happen because you have thousands upon thousands of touch points in your life that over the course of your life that have triggered you, that have created these little places in your brain that you're going to go this direction. So I think we're in that sense, the, you can't control the things outside of you, right? And so in that sense, yeah, we're you're a victim in that way. But what we're not victim to is there are things we can do to begin to respond to that and navigate that differently. That's good. So, Jeff, do you think it's possible when the shot of adrenaline and cortisol goes through your body, uh, can you stay in control? Is it possible to not let that lead to behavior that is embarrassing or regretful or hurtful of other people? I mean, I think the body is a great communicator. The body's going to tell you if you pay attention what's going on, if you really sort of begin to slow down, it'll slow down your breathing, slow down your thinking. Mm. And that's when you can make more rational, uh, productive choices. Yeah. That's good. So, you know, most of our listeners work in physically safe conditions. I don't know. I I haven't gotten any emails. I don't know if you have, Cynthia, from people that are in war zones or taming lions and tigers (laughs) at circuses or anything like that. Nobody's emailing me that they're dangling from helicopters trying to save people from sinking ships or anything like that. But so most of us are physically safe every day, every day, but yet this is still so common in the workplace. We get hijacked. Yeah. And so... Uh, what, why do you think that is if we're not like, you know, that example that I shared of me being out on that run on that serene day and feeling like this massive, you know, Cujo was coming after me. <laughs> why do you think we still struggle with this? Right. Well, okay. So, so let's talk about that because that example is something that is outside of your control, but that was probably a one-time event, right. though you may have been chased by a dog before. Never. But the, never. But, but the thing that did happen before was the, maybe what came up with your, was it your brother? Yes. That, okay, so in other words, you had some old tapes that were going on with him that you had an old narrative mm. that you potentially at that time had not looked at that narrative. That's right. And so, so when that thing happened, you got triggered and then you reacted. Yeah. And so where I feel like it's different than getting chased by the dog, the one-time event, like you, that is fight or flight. But what usually happens is, so when you're in the workplace or you're with your relationship with your brother is uh, these things have happened. So, so maybe your boss who is an authority figure over you says something and it, he hits on a tape that you've had before. Okay, okay? that's good. And so this old tape, and, and what hasn't happened is you haven't, and I call it, you haven't taken captive that narrative yet. And so if you haven't looked at that narrative, then the hijack is happening and you don't have any direction to go, but down your old path. Is it always typically like a bad experience? So I, I like what you're saying there about a boss. So maybe I had a boss in one of my first jobs out of college and the boss was a jerk and uh, they yelled at me all the time and it became kind of a traumatic experience for me. So now I go to this new place of work or even 10 years later in my career, I'm around somebody that reminds me of that person. 
Uh, is that typically the way this works? It, it would have to be, oh, you're reminding me of something bad from my life, and now I'm feeling threatened again? Well, and I would even, I, and this is just me, where I, where I would go with it, is I would think it's not necessarily, it could be from a boss, but a lot of those tapes happen in childhood. And so a lot of those wounds, a lot of those messages that you believe, I can't tell you the number of people I work with that have these messages, I'm not smart enough. Well, guess what? They're a CEO, but they became CEO because they were proving something to themselves. Right. And they so we've got these tapes that that we're playing that people are living out of. And sometimes it looks like overcoming and becoming this, you know, very successful. And sometimes it doesn't look that way. I think another reason why this topic has become so prevalent in, in leadership discussions is that uh, it's just an increasingly complex world with lots lots more ambiguity, faster learning curves, less less control, or at least the perception of having control. And so, you know, with emotional intelligence and positive psychology, a lot of leaders are just interested in reading about this topic. And so hopefully today you're going to get some practical and constructive ways to take captive that monster. Yeah, that's really good. Even right before we hit record on this, I was listening to uh, another guy talk, and he was on another podcast, which feels very meta on a podcast to talk about another podcast right now. But anyway, so he was talking about the importance of um, emotional intelligence, which is where this whole conversation falls under, and why it's so important for people who want to be successful to have a healthy degree of emotional intelligence. And he just said it so simply. He says, because between uh, where you are now and where you want to be, are, are uh, other people, right? And you, you are going to have to navigate relationships with other people to get where you're going to want to be. And uh, I thought that was such a simple way to say it and very motivating on to why we should want to try to fight this panic monster that can, you know, cause so much damage and, and leave such destruction in your life when it comes to your relationships with other people. Well, and I and I think, too, it's not just relationships with other people, but a lot of the places where I've been hijacked are me when I feel like I have to perform. Mm. And when I show up to give a, a talk of some kind, or if I'm showing up to a job where um, maybe there are expectations that I'm worried that I can't meet, it's not necessarily the other people. It, it is a Again, my own yep. issues that come up that can trigger the hijack before I even get to that place. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've shared some of our triggers, you know, that we have. And so what are some other common ones that are out there, Jeff? What would be a few reasons that would cause uh, this panic monster to throw the rational decision maker aside and start to control the brain? Well, it's kind of what Cynthia was saying a moment ago, maybe just kind of the identity thing, the fear of looking bad or, or being blamed, or maybe injustice, maybe the treatment of yourself or others, a lot of a lot of dialogue, a lot of narratives going on right there socially around that. Um, what about just an old, an old tape or trauma or or hurt something as we talked about from the past um, just you know and just feeling insecure a lot of us are just kind of feeling uneasy about these times yeah yeah so lots of different things there well and I was just gonna say and this may be redundant but if you if you have had times when you've had the panic come on you um, that is now a rut that you've got to deal with yeah. and so so if you've had that rush of emotion if you've had a panic attack or something like that like that in and of itself is the old tape like once you have that then that's in the brain and you've got to figure out how to navigate that yeah yeah and it doesn't have to be as um, you know as serious as a full-on panic right. attack right, right. It, but but enough of this thinking what were you saying it it can create some pathways in yes, your brain. Yes, the neural right? pathways in your brain uh, that that all of a sudden, like that's now laid down. That's a track that's laid down. 
that you can go down again and, and deepen that that rut, or you can can go over and create a new rut. You know, one of the things I think we need to really be clear about here is that we are not saying that you know all of these sorts of maybe good or new habits are going to take the adversity out of your life. We're, we're saying when adversity comes, and it will, how are you going to move through it where you're not going to be out of control you know, either getting yourself into some sort of negative thought pattern or a relationship problem. Yeah, trying to not have that experience that I uh, mentioned in the introduction of just looking back with regret and embarrassment and then hurt, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we'll talk about that here in a second on what do you do uh, when that happens. And so, um, okay, let's talk about this. Do you guys think it's always negative when the panic monster takes control of the wheel? Can can the amygdala hijack ever lead to something positive? Because we're kind of talking about it as a negative thing right now. You know, I don't think that it's always negative. I think sometimes um, uh, our body, uh, you know, communicates with us. It gets our attention. It's really just what we do with it after that. Obviously, when there's a risk of, of, of harm or safety, that's one thing. But even emotional or psychological risk, like when you stood up and you defended your friend, right? right. You probably had some value or some moral gesture there of, of you know, obviously it was a little out of control. Yeah, you know, I mean, the principal's office, but uh, older, you know, older, I'm with your brother. I liked, some, uh, liked where you're going with yeah. that, right? Uh, I just think we've just got to, through self-awareness and practice and processing, learn to have courage in those kinds of situations and be authentic about our, our frustrations or our emotions, but not in a way that's going to be harmful. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. So when you do see the injustice, stand up and say something, right? And, uh, and there's ways to do that when that hijack happens, that amygdala hijack happens that can be productive. Um, yeah, probably I, best just not to cuss at the authority figure right, to then right. be, be, you know, has to go visit another authority figure. That's probably some good advice right there. So, okay, let's do this. Let's talk about what can we do. All right. So there, um, you know, in some ways, Cynthia, we are victims in the sense that we don't control all the stimuli that come into our life that may cause this uh, cortisol and adrenaline dump in our body, but we can start to train ourselves to either be prepared for what are we going to do, kind of pre-live these moments. And there's some things we can do in the moment if we can recognize what's happening. So let's let's move now and talk about that. So what would you guys say, what can we do? What are some things that we can do to fight the panic monster? Well, I would just say, um, you know, in that moment, and, and this requires the pre-work. And so this is where I believe you have to go back and I would say identify the times that you see the monster show up and begin to look for a theme, and then begin to, to figure out what is it that I need to identify as, the, what are the messages there that I'm, and I would even say, what are the beliefs that I've got going on in those situations? And so that you've got to do that pre-work. And then from there, I would say you have to go, okay, what is a different narrative? And, and I use this example a lot. Like I, I went and, and I was coaching in this um, kind of a new field or with a new company. And I was trying to fill some big shoes that I was no way incapable of filling. And, and I was literally about to go into a panic before I walked in there. And one of the, the kind of mantra, for lack of a better word, that I use is, hey, you're just going into love and serve these people. And, and th- so, so I have created a new narrative for myself that when I go in and I am about to have to what I feel like is perform and I know the panic monster can take over I've come up with a new narrative which is hey you're you're there to love and serve these people and that literally in that moment it triggers me now into a new pathway that it's not the panic pathway yeah I like that yeah I've got an example I I share a lot of times with people that are kind of feeling insecure about a 
work, a work project or working on a team or something and they get an email and the email is cryptic or it's, you know, it's just like, you know, where's the report, Jeff? And it triggers me and I start feeling anxious or frustrated. Uh, I just encourage people to pick up a phone and clarify. Hey, Adam, I noticed you sent that email at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. I noticed you copied my supervisor. Help, you know, help me understand what's going on here. What is it that you need? And and just the, just the behaviors of clarification and even at some point saying, you know, that made me feel a little anxious. I'm trying to get ahead of this. And just kind of being authentic, not like freak out on people and just gush your emotions, but check things out with people or say something like, hey, the story I'm telling myself is this. I've yep. heard Cynthia say that before. It's Absolutely. And I've learned that from both you guys. And I used it just this week with a with a friend of mine of there were some some interactions that we had had on text message. And I just know things can, can be lost on text message. I realized I'd been telling myself a story and just called and just yeah, said, hey, I, I'm telling myself the story. Is this true? And of course it wasn't true. And I would just say communication 101 is that you don't, unless it's a really positive emotion, don't put cryptic messages in emails or texts, you know, if you're frustrated, things like that. I mean, that it's amplified by 10 <laughs> is, in our minds, Isn't right? that a whole nother episode? Yeah, that's another conversation. I mean, come on. Yes. Well, and I was just going to add on to what Jeff is saying, because I think this is the part in the in the brain, and, and I'm not a, a specialist in this area, but I know just a tiny bit, that there is this, you know, learning to identify and then creating a new narrative. And then the thing that Dr. Carolyn Leaf talks about in her book, Switch on Your Brain, is you have to act on it. In order to continue down that pathway, the action piece is huge. So what you're saying about, hey, making the call, sending the email for clarification, that's the action that's saying, hey, I am I am choosing to go down this road and I'm acting as if I believe this Even narrative. Even if you don't feel like it. Even right. if you don't feel you gotta, like it. You gotta plan to be courageous before for the stimulus hijacks. That's good. That's right. That's really good. So acting on it. Okay, so there is, uh, you know, maybe reviewing some game tape, if you will, that you go back and you look at old situations where maybe the panic monster took over, there was the amygdala hijack, you behaved in a way that was regretful or embarrassing. So go back and review that, like dissect it. Let's learn from that. Let's not just call that a failure. Let's let's move forward. So that can teach you some things about what was it? What were you hearing? What were you thinking? That might even give you clues physiologically, Jeff, as you were talking about that you will feel this when it happens. That could give you clues as to what is uh, one of the clues for you that this is happening. Like I know for me, going back and reviewing game tape, when my heartbeat, when I can hear it in my ears, right? <laughs> like I can, it is, it is beating so hard that I can hear it in my ears. I know I am at risk for doing something that would hurt somebody, be regretful or embarrassing, right? And so that is a trigger for me is going, okay, this is happening, you right. know? And notice, and notice what you just did in the, in the kind of little, you kind of just took a breath took right a breath, there, right? Yeah. Because yes. you're getting me all fired up, Jeff, and so okay. I'm about to... Simmer down now. Uh, anyway. Okay, so reviewing game tape, um, what would be some other things that you can do, Jeff? You know, I like the idea of, of physically moving around, like going for a walk, going going to the water cooler, whatever you need to do. Just change your scenery, all right? Get just a different thing going on. You know, sometimes when I've been home working at home for many, many days in a row, I'll just go for a drive or I'll just go for a walk at lunch and it just clears my head. It's because you got a new cool car. Oh my gosh, that's a very midlife crisis thing. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that's an upside of all these Zoom meetings right now is if you get triggered, you can turn off your camera and you can hit mute and you can just go like run around your apartment or your house or something and just just be like, hey, I'm going to... Uh, the kids are acting up and just send a message. And I mean, it's lying. It's a but thing, it could man. Be Zoom fatigue, right? It could be helpful. Um, you know, one of the things for me that was really helpful on wanting to battle this was that was actually wanting to battle it. 
that was a big deal for me to just go, do I want this to change in my life? And so, again, not all of our listeners have uh, maybe this, this, you know, this history of you can point back to all these times where the panic monster kind of uh, wreaked havoc or, or caused all this destruction. But it, I mean, I just I had to want to change, you know. I and and I think that is a really valuable question for some leaders to sit there and and even think about. Just going, do I do I want to handle this different, or is this because if not, then you know, be free. You can do whatever you want. You know, this is a you don't have to do this. You know, and I would really want to be mindful for people that have really gone through serious trauma that you know have need healing and they really need the help to to kind of. It's more than just a narrative or practice. It's deeper work there. But I'd say for for most of us, most of the time, these are really helpful ways for us to be prepared and navigate adversity in a more more effective way. All right, let's wrap up the conversation with this last question. So, because this is going to happen, right? Nobody's going to be able to apply this perfectly. You're going to have situations at work and in your life where you're going to um, get hijacked, say something that you regret, or act in a way that's embarrassing, and so. What should a leader do when the panic monster has taken over and they've said something that they will regret or have regret or that's embarrassed them? So what would be some advice and, and counsel? What have you guys done uh, when this has happened to you? Well, I think recovery is is so very important. Um, a leader that apologizes is a very powerful thing. Uh, to clarify your intent, to make amends when that's appropriate. Um, and you know what? If you're tell people what you're working on, you know, hey, I'm trying to work on our meetings being more productive. And sometimes I know I get excited, or, you know, I'm going to pick up a phone next time I have a concern. Uh, tell people what you're working on, and people will, will, will just come alongside you and help you out. Yeah. And you're not talking about like, oh, here's my to do list. You, no. you mean from like a character and leadership that's perspective? That's right. Yeah. Go first. That's really good. Cynthia, yeah. how about you? What have been some ways, if this has happened to you, how have you tried to clean it up? And and, and what do you see that works? Well, I did that this morning. As a matter of fact. Okay. <laughs> That's why you're five minutes late. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think it's taking the action of going back and just facing it. And I really do increasingly see my mistakes as opportunities. In this case, an opportunity to humble myself and just say, hey, I didn't handle that well, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And and uh, see them as opportunities to, and, and in some ways, even going back to, to face it down and in some ways to, to move through something, you have to get repetitions. And, you know, it's like, okay, I made the mistake again. Here I go. I'm going to go back and correct that. And the more you do that, the better you get at that. And I go back to the narrative. The more you have that new narrative, the more you have traction in a different direction. That's really good. You know, I think that's where the self-awareness comes in because, you know, I, I could be righteous in my frustration about, you know, dressing down an employee who's laid on, on a report. But, you know, what impact is that going to have on that on the on the trust, on the team, on the culture, on the morale. I mean, that's what we're trying to get at here with this leadership podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the power of, of admitting the mistake, uh, owning that you've hurt somebody, uh, saying you're sorry, asking forgiveness, it may seem counterintuitive. Like, well, I can't show that weakness. You know, this is, especially if you're a leader of a big team or something like that. And I, you know, I think we would challenge people to go, yeah, you may be right, uh, but you also might be wrong. Uh, that really could be a step towards building more trust, not eroding trust, where uh, there's just something about that that could be really powerful. Of when you do swing and miss, admit it. And that'll help create that culture 
on your team of people that accept responsibility. They don't shift blame, uh, which would then lead to more people being triggered all the time and uh, being frustrated and in this panic monster uh, causing destruction potentially. So, uh, guys, any final thoughts on this conversation? I, I just so glad we covered this today. I mean, I need it in my life. I'm, I'm trying to live out this stuff as well. Um, <laughs> That's why so, we brought you here, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, be encouraged, you know, and, and really you know, do the hard work and process these kinds of things with trusted friends and colleagues. And again, you know, have, you know, prepare to have courage ahead of time. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I, I would just even say, expect that it's going to happen. And so when it does, don't be discouraged by it, but know it's an opportunity to get better and that we're all human and we're all in the same Yeah, boat. don't get hijacked just because you're getting hijacked, right? <laughs> there you go. There we go. Well, that's Perfect. meta. That yeah, is that's very meta right there. Very so. meta. All right, guys, thanks. You know, as we're wrapping up, there's just something that I feel like I need to clarify, and it's this. Uh, all the decisions that I make, they're my own. This metaphor of the panic monster and the rational decision maker, it's just that. It's just a metaphor, and all metaphors eventually break down. I'm not blaming a cartoon for the poor choices that I make. Uh, There are no people that are living in my brain, and there's no people living in your brain either. I just felt like that needed to be said. Now, uh, to put a bow on all of this, I just want to wrap it up with one last story. So a few years back, the Texas Rangers acquired all-star catcher Jonathan Lucroy from the Milwaukee Brewers in a midseason trade. Shortly after he arrived, there was a stressful ending to a game where the Rangers barely held on to win. It was one of those games where Lucroy ended up going out to visit the pitcher's mound multiple times during the bottom half of that final inning. At the post-game press conference, one of the reporters asked Lucroy, what do you say when you go out there to visit the pitcher's mound? I'll never forget Lucroy's answer. He paused for a moment and he looked at the reporter and he just said, most of the time I just go out there and tell him to breathe. It's amazing in those stressful situations how often these pitchers just forget to breathe. I love that answer because it is so relevant to everything that we just got done talking about today. What Lucroy is basically saying is this, the panic monster hates oxygen. So if nothing else, if you remember nothing else from today's episode, when you feel that panic monster about ready to throw the rational decision maker aside and take control of your brain and lead you in a direction that you do not want to go where you're going to say and do things that you're going to regret, if nothing else, if nothing else in those moments, remember you're not a victim. Just breathe. Just breathe. Thanks so much for listening to Here's What I'm Seeing. Never miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode, as always, was mixed and edited by the amazing team over at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about them at soundofarose.com. Thank you again to Tim Urban for coming up with those ridiculous cartoon characters that helped us really understand the amygdala hijack today. We are grateful for you and your creativity. And if you haven't done so yet, please head over to adamtarno.com. Hit that free ideas button that's up there in the top menu. Each week I send out an email filled with ideas to help you beat the panic monster and lead with excellence. That's all for this episode. Have a great day.